Welcome to On The Fly College Edition, a podcast presented by Playfly Sports. I'm your host, Gene DiFilippo. Playfly Sports is the full-service marketing and media company bringing digitally enabled innovations to the sports industry. Welcome to this week's On The Fly. I'm your host, Gene DiFilippo, and our guest this week is Val Ackerman, extremely extremely talented and a woman who has had an outstanding career helping to run the dream team being the president of usa basketball being the president of the women's national basketball association being inducted into the naismith basketball hall of fame and now the commissioner of the big east conference welcome val ackerman Hey, Gene, great to be with you. Oh, thanks so much. Val, there are so many administrators out there, a lot of them women. Um, they would love to be you and to be like you. Can you take us from your days as a player at the University of Virginia and then going on to UCLA and then on and on in your career? Well, Gene, um, I'm very flattered to hear that. Um, quite honestly, and glad that uh, women in the business now have some people to look up to um, that are also women, because that wasn't the case for me. Um, I, you know, I, I kind of came up in the business at a time when there were very few women in senior positions. And uh, fortunately, the men I worked for were good to me and uh, taught me pretty much everything I know, at least I knew back then. I, I've learned a little bit since then. And, uh, and I, I really do hope that um, some trails have been blazed here by myself and others for the women who are following. Um, for me, you know, I've been in this at this for a long time. I was a, um, a, a high school athlete, multi-sport athlete. I wound up at the University of Virginia um, with a partial and then full basketball scholarship in the early years of Title IX. The, uh, the program was just getting off the ground then coach Debbie Ryan was in her first year um, as the head coach at UVA. She went on to have a 30 plus year career there and built the program, but we were her guinea pigs, so to speak. Um, I had an interdisciplinary major at UVA. Um, it was called political and social thought. And I chose that because I wanted to go to law school. That was a career dream. So when I graduated from Virginia in 81, um, my, my sights were set on going to law school. I took a year off before that and played overseas in France. There was no WNBA back then. Uh, there was a predecessor league, but I, you know, I don't know. I just sort of discounted it and went overseas for the semester abroad I never had and uh, landed in France, um, spent a little time there before coming back to the USA and then going on to UCLA Law School. And it was there that I sort of knit together this desire to be in the law, but also to stay in the sports world. Um, I tried you know, at a law school to get a sports job. It didn't happen. And I wound up at a big corporate law firm in New York City, Simpson, Thatcher and Bartlett, which was high end work, um, sort of a world that I had no, you know, readiness for uh, sort of the world of M&A and debt financing and, you know, large credit agreements. But, uh, you know, it was a great experience. And one of the best parts of it is I met my husband, Charlie, there. He was another lawyer at the firm. We ended up getting married. He stayed. I left. 
And then my next job in, you know, um, in the law was at the National Basketball Association, where I started as a staff lawyer in 1988, working for then general counsel Gary Bettman, uh, now the commissioner of the National Hockey League. So I, I guess in a capsule, you know, fashion, Gene, that was my sort of my pathway. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my career really has, you know, now spanned 34 years in the sports business, has taken me you know, I'm happy to say to sort of the four corners of the sports world. And um, it's a, you know, it's a journey I wouldn't have, you know, given up for anything. When you became president of the WNBA, they had never played a game. I remember the picture of you, uh, the symbolic picture of you um, throwing up the, the ball for the first tip. Tell, tell us about what that was like trying to form a women's professional basketball league? Well, we, um, we, the NBA, sort of were quietly working on, on the WNBA starting about 1994-ish. We were, at that point, um, a couple of years into the NBA's relationship with USA Basketball, and I served as one of the early liaisons between the league and USAB to bring into being that first dream team that played in Barcelona, the second dream team that um, participated in the first FIBA World Championship in, uh, in Toronto, Canada. And then that idea really of back in the national team, um, uh, you know, allowed us, paved the way for us to support the USA Basketball Women's National Team in 95. That was en route to playing in Atlanta in 96. Kind of a lot there um, for any, you know, any... Uh, listening to this ESPN just a few months ago did a I thought a really a really good documentary about that that team the 95-96 national team that played in Atlanta it's called Dream On it's a three-part series on ESPN and did a good job of explaining what brought that team into being and then how that led to the WNBA which launched in 97. So the answer to your question is it was a lot of work to bring the league into being. Um, I credit David Stern with getting NBA owners at that time to back it. Um, he really did have this this vision about a, you know, a, a, you know, an, um, a strengthened connection between women and the sport of basketball. He, he was the visionary uh, around that. And I was working for him at the time as his chief of staff and uh, was also doing some other things on the side. And he sort of deputized me as the women's basketball person within the league office. So many people were involved. It was um, exhausting and exhilarating all at the same time to bring the league into being in that first season. And, you know, kind of gratifying for somebody like me now, mm -hmm. 26 years later, <clears throat> to see the league, you know, not only still standing, because that was a concern. Um, but, you know, but thriving and, and serving as a beacon for, for women's teams, team professional sports in this country. Wow. The dream team in 1992, you and Russ Granick, uh, Granick ran the team on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, Chuck Daly was the coach. You had Michael Jordan, Larry Bird. What was that like? It was, as you might imagine, pretty, um, pretty historic, you know, to get those great players, Hall of Famers slash future Hall of Famers, everyone um, on a, you know, on a team that was playing for the very first time in the Olympics. What, what bigger stage is there? And uh, as you noted, Russ Granick, the longtime deputy commissioner of the NBA was the, 
senior liaison with USAB, led at that time by Dave Gavitt, who was president slash board chair. Um, Bill Wall and Tom McGrath were the uh, the executive director and assistant direct director working out of Colorado Springs. And then I was pulled into this. Um, I, I hadn't been at the league more than a couple of months when Russ came in and said, hey, can you help me out on this project? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, sure, Russ, whatever. And that was the project, the first dream team. So it was extraordinary work to... Um, you know, you know, have that team come online. There were all sorts of complexities around that level of player, the commercial issues in particular, the intellectual property rights that were asserted by the U.S. Olympic Committee at that time around the rings, commercial relationships they have, which didn't always align with the commercial interests of our players, particularly sneaker company interests. Um, and just the whole, you know, sensation of pulling that team together, having them qualify in the summer of 92, going on to Barcelona where it was like traveling with a rock band <laughs> just at every turn. I mean, they, we were mobbed and they were mobbed. And so it was uh, really um, an important moment in the history of the game because among other things, it just opened up the NBA's business internationally. And so to be part of that for me, you know, just sort of professionally and personally was a huge thrill. That had to be a great experience. I just can't imagine. I I've read the book several times and, um, the, I knew PJ well, I knew coach Krzyzewski and, um, they, uh, they learned, they said they learned a heck of a lot from, from Chuck is how to, how to really coach and manage NBA players because it was different. I think that's right. I mean, you needed Gene, a certain kind of coach to manage that team. I mean, it was, you needed a, a mature person who could manage the minutes you know, because you got on that team, every every guy could start and star. So to be able to to manage that, um, to deal with sort of the egos that were involved, um, I, you know, he was the perfect choice, perfect choice. And the nod to college basketball at that time, which was a little bit disenfranchised because now pro players were representing the United States, not the college guys. Um, that was the thinking behind allowing two coaches from the college ranks and that they were Mike and PJ who were also, I mean, incredible, uh, Mike being Mike and then PJ being PJ, you know, <laughs> fun guy to travel with. He knew the name of every waiter in every restaurant we went to by the time the tour was over with. And then Lenny Wilkins, you know, Hall of Fame coach was um, sort of a perfect, you know, ad as well on the NBA side. So it was, again, um, sort of a, an amazing sort of set of months. Uh, for the sport of basketball and has led, of course, to, you know, now a decades long participation of the NBA um, in the Olympics, which, uh, you know, I think anybody associated with the league has, will tell you, has been great for their, you know, for their brand and for their business as well. Oh, for sure. For sure. Let's, uh, let's switch topics now and let's go to the Big East Basketball Conference, which is one of the great basketball conferences of all time. Um, you've won several national championships here. You've had some teams in the final four. Your conference is extremely competitive. You have a great deal with Fox. Talk us to us a little bit about uh, the Big East Conference. Well, we're alive and well, Gene, which, um, you know, wasn't a given. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, at many points along the way, as, as you know, uh, particularly um, 10 years ago when the old Big East was 
was, you know, a few years into breaking up, um, teams were sort of coming and going. Uh, I was an observer at that point. Um, it was sort of a fascinating case study in realignment. Um, my, you know, my opportunity here at the Big East came on the heels of, um, you know, the last um, major wave of realignment, which resulted in the so-called Catholic Seven, including some charter Big East schools, deciding to withdraw from the old league. They were seeing schools leaving for football interests. They weren't part of football, didn't want their destiny controlled by others. So they made the decision courageously to withdraw. They added Butler, Creighton, and Xavier, three other proud basketball schools who were in other leagues to form a new 10-team Big East, 10-school Big East in 2013. At the time, fortuitously, Fox Sports was about to launch a new national cable network that it hoped would compete with ESPN, and that was FS1. Um, and so they needed wintertime programming, and a lot of it. And so that led to a, you know, uh, a, what was then a 12-year deal with the new Big East that basically put every men's basketball game on over-the-air television, either on FS1 or now Big Fox, a little FS2, some CBS and CBS Sports Network games thrown in. Um, and so, you know, then I then I came along. They, they then needed, you know, they, they were able to keep the right to play the tournament in the garden. They were able to keep all of the intellectual property and the record books, but they needed somebody to bring it to life. And that's where I entered the picture. Uh, so I'm now entering my 10th year um, as the commissioner of the new Big East. It's been, it's been a, you know, another journey I never expected. Um, have had, you know, some long days, especially early on, because we were basically rebuilding the league from scratch. All the infrastructure was left back with the old league, which became the American. Uh, we won't, you know, we ended up in New York City, uh, <coughs> which was the desire of the presidents. So uh, it's been, you know, an amazing run here. We have now 11 schools with the, uh, the rejoining of, of University of Connecticut to the conference a few years ago. Um, we've got 22 sports. Um, I'm glad you referenced Villanova's two national championship titles. We've had uh, great success um, getting teams into the tournament on the men's side, especially have had some deep runs there and have had some successes in other sports that we're proud of. Georgetown won the national championship in men's soccer, for example, in 2019, right before the pandemic hit um, and remains a powerhouse among other schools that have done well in selected sports. Um, so, you know, it's been, uh, it's been great to be part of this, you know, proud legacy and history. And, um, I often think back to my days, early days as an executive at the NBA, when I got to know Dave Gavitt. And so the idea of, you know, perpetuating, uh, his vision in terms of creating this, you know, basketball league that could be successful in a football world isn't lost on me. Yes. Um, we speak about Dave Gavitt. I admired him so much. I remember being named director of athletics at Villanova in September of 1993. And um, thinking that the Big East was a very, very sound, secure league. And we went to that first convention and Mike Trangizi was our commissioner and Mike sent us all um, a message saying that Jake Crowdhamel wanted us all to meet. Um, 
at lunch in Michael's suite. And we had no idea what was coming. And it was Jake speaking, and he wanted to invite Rutgers and West Virginia to join the Big East Conference um, so that Syracuse and Pitt and Boston College and they could all protect their football. Well, that really led to kind of a brouhaha. Some of the basketball schools didn't want to expand with football. They didn't want any part of football. Uh, some of the other basketball schools didn't want to give up their rivalries with Syracuse. So I get on a plane, I fly, fly to Providence, Val, and I spend the morning with Dave Gavin. And I said, Coach, I never called him Dave. I always called him Coach. I said, Coach, you need to help me here. I've just gotten into this league. I'm a young guy. I'm 43 years old. You need to help me as to what's going on. And he said, Gene, I'll never forget this. He said, Gene, there will always be a place at the NCAA basketball tournament for the Big East. They are a great basketball conference. If the conference was not built around football, let the football schools go and you'll have a great basketball conference. And I left. I went back and the vote came and the vote was to stay with um, the Big East and to add um, Rutgers and West Virginia, which happened. And then shortly after that, the basketball schools wanted to add um, Notre Dame. So we added Notre Dame. But Dave Gavitt was so far ahead of his time and you being a descendant, so to speak, of Dave Gavitt have been ahead of your time with the Big East. It's really, really been incredible. Well, I love hearing those stories, Gene. Um, I've read about them in, in uh, or, you know, I, I watched the Big East documentary, the 30 for 30 movie that yeah. is you know, recommended viewing. ESPN produced it some years ago. I make sure everybody who joins my staff watches that movie because they can see for themselves sort of how this league came into being. Um, Dane O'Neill wrote a great book called Inside the Big East that published about a year ago, which also chronicles the history. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if the story you just recited is in there, but she speaks to the, the great coaches, the storied programs that were the cornerstone of the league in the early years. Um, and so I'm very conscious of that. I'm, I'm very respectful of history and, uh, especially when it can teach you something and you don't, you know, um, you don't have to learn something from scratch. History sometimes repeats itself. <laughs> I've learned. And so if you know, kind of, you know, what came before you, then you can better predict what might be in front of you. That's true. And, uh, you know, I think, um, I hope Dave's right. I'm, I'm going to keep in my mind your note here about there'll always be a place in the basketball tournament for the Big East. I, I sure think so. Um, and, you know, there's obviously quite a lot going on now within college sports and sort of talk of stratification because the football conferences are entering sort of a different trajectory here than, uh, than the rest of us. But I, you know, I feel pretty bullish that our schools, which are 100% focused on basketball, we don't have football revenue, but we don't have football expenses um, or distraction. And, uh, 
you know, I think we have very much what it takes to, to hang right in there and remain relevant and highly competitive nationally. You so, always will be. I'm going to take my karma from above from Coach Gavitt here and, uh, you know, and hope that, uh, that a future, you know, the, the great future that I envision um, will, in fact, come to be. Uh, well, all right. Let's switch topics once again and go to Title IX. I know you had a, a terrific career. You were a field hockey player. You were in high school. You were a basketball player. Um, you were a three-star, a three-sport star. Uh, you went on to the University of Virginia. You played uh, basketball there. How did Title IX help you and other women, like my two daughters, Christine, who played basketball at Villanova, and Mary, who played field hockey at Boston College? How did it help all you and, and all the women? Well, it opened doors, Gene. I mean, just pure and simple. Uh, it made available to us what might not, almost certainly would not have been available to us without the force of federal law um, behind um, scholarships, behind program development, behind playing opportunities at the high school and collegiate level. Um, I'll confess when Title IX was passed, I think I was in between seventh and eighth grade. So the enormity of this law was completely lost on me, had no, had no idea um, at that, at that time what had happened, but the, you know, the fruits were certainly visible to me. I went on and uh, went to high school. I was, as you noted, I was a three sport athlete. I played field hockey, basketball, and ran track for my uh, public high school in central New Jersey. And I think I was on the front wave of scholarships, certainly at UVA where I matriculated because uh, my basketball team there uh, had, when I got there, had one scholarship for basketball. One. I, I split it with a, a coach was resourceful, so she split it. And so um, I joke, I got tuition and fees. My teammate got room and board. So I went to class and she got to eat. <laughs> that was our, like, that's how it worked. It, and then my next year I got upgraded. And then the team got more scholarships and she pushed. And frankly, here's one for you. Gene Corrigan was the AD at Virginia when I was a student athlete there. And talk about, um, you know, a great guy and uh, one of know, my favorites. rock star commissioner. And in fact, when I took the Big East job, one of the first people I called was Gene to ask him, OK, how does this work in college sports? I have some familiarity with commissionership at the pro level, but how does it work here? And he was, as you might expect, amazing. So that was my experience. Uh, but Title IX made it possible, Gene. And so I look back, it didn't, you know, Title IX didn't, didn't sort of, there wasn't a magic wand here that made it equal right away or equitable even. I mean, it, it took a long time. But are things better? Absolutely. Um, you know, am I, someone like me, just in awe of all the benefits now flowing to female student athletes, including your daughters? Absolutely. Um, is there still room for improvement? Yeah, probably. Um, but I think the pros, you know, really outweighs the cons right now. And, uh, you know, would, would all of this have happened, uh, you know, without this, again, this transformational law? Uh, the answer is almost certainly no. And I'm glad that uh, I was able to be an early beneficiary of it. You know, it's not often that I get to be on a podcast with a Hall of Famer. And, uh, you know, that is the highest honor that you can receive. 
in a professional sport. Um, when you were elected to the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame, tell us what that was like and what it was like to go and to the induction. You were inducted with a lot of great, great people. Um, one of my favorites is uh, is your buddy from Philadelphia, Mel, who I really, really enjoy. But talk about that a little bit. <clears throat> well, it's interesting, Gene. So I was for many years on the Naismith board um, as an NBA and then later a WNBA appointee. Um, and that's sort of how it works. They, you know, the, the Naismith board includes, um, the major constituents in the game. So there's NBA appointees, NCAA appointees. There's a high school designee. There's a coaches association designee. There's people from Springfield, obviously, you know, who are on there cause it's, um, very much, um, community supported. So I was, you know, for many years working for Russ and David, you know, on the board. And so every year we went to enshrinement and I was, you know, familiar with the selection process because it sort of involved um, and sort of sat there every year and watched people get in. And so when it came, you know, when I had the opportunity to be inducted, it, it was sort of surreal, you know, to be up there looking out after so many years of watching um, with great admiration the folks who had been, you know, put in from the men's game, the women's game, internationally, et cetera. So, again, I guess is, is you know, one way to describe it. Um, very honored, of course. Um, I will add, you know, you didn't mention in my class, my colleague, Coach Wright from Villanova. And that was a thrill to go in uh, with Jay, um, whose, you know, accomplishments don't need my, you know, my retelling here. But it made for a very special event for the conference. We had quite a few folks from our schools sort of coming. We had a little party. And, uh, you know, Jay is, um, uh, you know, uh, has been as important as anybody. And what's happened in the Big East over the last 10 years? I don't think anybody has done as much for the league as, as him and the Villanova, you know, basketball program in terms of keeping the Big East where we want it to be. So that was uh, a thrill as well to to go in with my colleague there and you mentioned mel longtime women's basketball writer who got one of the gowdy awards which are the special awards that go to the media representatives and um you know i tip my hat to mel for covering women's basketball at a time when no one did he he was the guy like literally doing the poll himself the national it was the mel greenberg women's college basketball poll he just did it himself and now we've got the coaches association and usa today and others dialed in but Mel is truly the godfather of the writers, and uh, was very. Uh, it was great to see his his accomplishments recognized. Yeah, we have to mention our great friend C.M. Newton. Uh, I worked under C.M. for almost seven years as associate athletic director. You worked along with C.M. Um, in several different areas. Why don't you talk a little bit about CM Newton? Oh gosh, um, boy, I, I had I had so much respect for for Coach Newton. Um, I'll share my connection here. When I uh, when the NBA became part of USA Basketball in 1989, it was required to join as an active member after FIBA, the international governing body, made the decision to allow no players to be in the Olympics. 
um, the NBA had to formally join the USA Basketball governance structure. It actually had to change its name to USA Basketball because you may recall, Gene, formerly known as the Amateur Basketball Association of the USA. That's right. Abusa. (laughs) So, you know, it was no longer amateur with the NBA involved. So name got changed in 89. And then the original appointees to the board from the NBA were Russ Granick, Deputy Commissioner, Rod Thorne, longtime head of basketball operations for the NBA, and me. So at that time, CM was one of the NCA appointees, very much part of the basketball brain trust there, as well as, of course, the ultra-successful athletics director at the University of Kentucky and a real NCA insider. So just that connection... Um, through USA Basketball, put Russ and me in contact regularly with CM, who succeeded Dave. Dave was the board chair at that time. He rolled off, and then it was CM's turn to be the chair. And so, boy, what a gentleman. Um, really um, had the best interests of the game at heart, is how I would describe it. Just a, just a, a phenomenal steward of the game. Just really cared about it and wanted to do the right thing by basketball. And I think that's what endeared me to CM as much as anybody. He was married to a lovely woman named Evelyn who passed away, um, who we had all gotten to know. And, uh, you know, he was key when the women's program sort of began to, you know, get the NBA's interest in the mid nineties. It was under CM's watch that the women's national team program in 95, 96 was approved and then happened and then eventually set the stage uh, for the launch of the WNBA. So uh, I, you know, I had great regard, great affection for the man. I kept in touch with him um, really almost to the end. And uh, I greatly miss him. He was uh, very much a guiding light for many, many of us in the business, including me. I miss Ian Gene Corrigan every day. I really do. Both great, great men, along with Dave Gavitt. Um, three of the greats in in basketball history. Uh, I have to tell you one quick story uh, about C.M. Newton. We were looking for a basketball coach at the University of Kentucky. I believe the year was 1990. And um, C.M. was so far ahead of his time that he thought about hiring um, Pat Summit. He actually thought about hiring Pat Summit to be the head coach of the University of Kentucky men's team. And he used, he had that big uh, Olympic ring that he had from the 1988 team. And when he was thinking about things, Valley go like this. And that ring was as, as big as anything I've ever seen. And he would go like this and he'd say, you know, Gene, if I had the courage, I'd hire Pat Summit because she's as good a coach as there is in this country. Now that was back in 1990. Who was thinking that way at that time? Nobody that I know of. Yeah. And nobody since Gene, which sort of, you know, bothers me. I mean, I knew you're, you're reeling off all my idols here. Wow. Pat, another one. Great, you know, great lady. Uh, You know, G O A T quality uh coach who i got to know 
and was actually when we launched the WNBA, we we had her. We didn't. ESPN had her doing color analyst work on the package of games that the league had on ESPN in prime time. But I, I'm with you. Uh, I, w- I would have loved to have seen that. Um, back to my initial reaction here. I'm surprised that we haven't yet seen, um, you know, women really many, if any women on the sidelines of men's college basketball games. Um, you know, we're starting to see it a little bit in the NBA to their credit, bringing women on board in basketball positions, not just marketing jobs, but sport jobs. And right. uh, Pat was, you know, as good as it gets in terms of, you know, X's and O's, how to motivate players, how to run a program, et cetera. Uh, and it doesn't surprise me to hear that the thought at least had crossed CM's mind. That, that That's definitely the kind of person he was. It's nice now that I can bring that forward and let people know where CM Newton's thinking process was 30, 35 years ago. Um, he was a leader in his time. Val, you've been involved in international basketball for years and years. And we in the United States here had a great run uh, for a long time and that our basketball was better and our players seemed to be better trained than some of the international teams and players. Uh, It seems like they've caught up, but I don't know that answer. Why don't you tell us about it? Well, you know, it's interesting, Gene, because when the first dream team um, came onto the scene in 1992, um, it was expected, but it was still, you know, sort of sobering when it hit that the rest of the world sort of took a step back. That team was so good, as you know, oh. and they were winning by what? 50 points in 92. And that kind of continued in 94 and 96. But by 2000, the world started catching up. And I would remember being at the Sydney Olympics in 2000 and we had a close call in that game on the men's side, we almost lost. I think it was Vince Carter who pulled the game out. And then by Oh two, you know, the wall sort of started crashing in. We, we lost at the FIBA world championship in Indianapolis of all places in Oh two. And then of course took the bronze in 2004 at the Athens game on the men's side. So that led to um, kind of a reckoning within USA basketball. um, And, and the decision by mutually by the NBA and USAB to bring in Jerry Colangelo. And you'll remember Jerry came on um, and, you know, with a directive to write the ship. Right. And so I, you know, I was, I became board chair slash president at that same time. So work with Jerry and others to sort of bring back the men's program. Um, coach K was part of that effort, of course, as the coach of the team. And so that really, you know, kind of got things back on track beginning in, well, 06, we had a stumble because the, uh, the men's team lost at the, um, at the world cup in Japan, but by 08 in China, you know, the, the natural order was restored and USA brought home gold. So on the men's side, what I would say is, yeah, the USA is still expected to win, especially if the top NBA players are participating. But if and when that doesn't happen, it sometimes happens that they don't, and we're sending sort of a next level or two levels down team, um, there's no guarantees because the world really has caught up on the men's side. 
I would tell you on the women's side, the USA is very, very dominant. Um, beginning in 96, uh, we've been on a, a gold medal streak that's now seven and counting with the gold medal last summer in Tokyo. And there's really no competition that's close to us. I give a lot of credit there to college basketball for and the WNBA for creating this high-level, if you will, Olympic training program on the women's side that's kept us sort of way up here. And it would be my hope. I, I think that's good for USA. I think it's a negative for international basketball on the women's side. I'd like to see more competition, more along the lines of what you see in women's soccer. So when the USA plays in the FIFA World Cup, it's sort of close. It's some right. it's suspenseful. There's some drama. We're not seeing the same drama on the women's side, which is, again, good for the USA. That domination is something USA basketball likes. But when you're trying to cultivate interest globally, those rivalries, uh, I think, really do matter. And um, I guess the short answer to your question is, you know, we invest a lot here in the sport of basketball. It's you sort of see that globally, but not everywhere. And, uh, I, you know, it's really on the International Basketball Federation on whose board I served for eight years, really to be thinking strategically about how to upgrade basketball globally. And, you know, frankly, in some places, it's very challenging. Okay. Val, you were awesome. I mean, I knew you'd be, I knew you'd be great, but I mean, you are awesome. We talked about some things that nobody else could talk about. I mean, you know, I mean, you were involved in Title IX, president of the WNBA. Oh my God, this is this has been fantastic. We're out of time on this week's On the Fly College Edition. I'm your host, Gene DiFilippo. Thanks for your time this time, and we'll see you next time.